Hey everybody, you're listening to Let's Break This Down. I'm your host, Sydney Talbert. Let's Break This Down is a podcast that discusses political concepts, current news, and historical topics. If that sounds like something you're interested in, stay tuned because we got something good for you. Alrighty guys, so today's topic of discussion is the Underground Railroad. I'm going to break down what it was, who were instrumental in its creation, and running it. I'm going to break down stories that people had to endure. And I'm going to talk about some of the harsh punishments and conditions should someone be caught. Alright, so let's break down the topic of the Underground Railroad. Now, when I was a child and I first heard of the Underground Railroad, I imagined a train that was underground, much like a subway, with different stops, and enslaved people escaping violence from plantations would board, and then they were on the road to freedom. Don't be like me. Also, do y'all remember on the Real Housewives of Atlanta with Portia and all the housewives, and they were touring different places in Georgia that served as underground railroad safe houses or something like that and Portia just gave this inspirational speech and she was like I can only imagine their bravery da 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 and then she was like but I wonder where the train fit and everybody looked at her because she's like 25 (laughs) don't be like me and Portia y'all it had nothing to do with trains or anything like that however The Underground Railroad was in fact not underground, it wasn't even a railroad, it was a group of individuals who used their homes, resources, and more to secretly help enslaved people to freedom because they knew slavery was wrong. There's a lot of mythology around the Underground Railroad, so we're going to clear that up today. For example, something I did not know was the Underground Railroad did not operate as a well-functioning machine. And everyone knew when enslaved people would be moved to the next location and where. It just simply didn't happen like that. When I was a kid, I was like, okay, Harriet, you got him. You got them through the Mason-Dixon. And then, Frederick, you get him from here. And then on Tuesday, we're going to swap. I don't know why I thought it was so well-organized or so network-heavy. But that just was not the case at all. (laughs) You couldn't just alert the whole plantation as to where you were going to run after um, fear of betrayal. So it's not like you could be like, okay, this is my route, this is where I'm going, and this is who I'm going to be with. Because if you told the whole plantation, maybe some people, you know, would be scared of Master when he came and threatened to beat them if they didn't tell you anything like that so you had to keep it very hush hush and you had to tell only friends and family that you 100 100% trusted and same with those who hided the quote-unquote fugitive slaves because it was technically a federal crime so if you think about it if escaping slavery was so systematically organized and proven to be successful each time The empire of slavery would have fallen long before the Civil War. With the Underground Railroad, there was no headquarters. There were no comprehensive maps as shown as television, because I know I thought, okay, there's at least got to be a map somewhere. No, 
just vibes. There was no map. In reality, most escaped slaves were on their own until they crossed the Ohio River or the Mason-Dixon Line. Then they would encounter the Underground Railroad. And most people who we famously associate with the Underground Railroad community across the country actually didn't know anything about each other. While the Underground Railroad was actually nothing like a railroad when you think about it, they used train lingo as a way to communicate with each other and spread information and code. For example, stops and safe houses, such as people's homes and churches, were known as stations. The guides who led the escapees to safe houses and trains were conductor. For example, the most famous person when associated with the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman, she was a conductor because she led the escapees to these safe houses. The people who hid escaped slaves in their homes were called station masters. And speaking in code is what allowed for the Underground Railroad to exist. The passing of information had to be auditory because most enslaved people were not allowed to be educated on how to read or write. So there were codes that were passed by word of mouth for how to know when to run or who were really your friends or foes. This is also where we see Negro spirituals come in. The one I'm going to talk about is this song, Follow the Drinking Gourd. And I'm going to go over the first and second voice. Do not make fun of my little singing, talking voice, okay? Because I'm not singing girl. It goes, when the sun come back, when the first quail call, then the time is come, follow the drinking gourd. To break this verse down, which that was verse one, it means is that in the springtime, more specifically during the quail breeding season, which is early to mid-April in Alabama, now is the time to run. Now, the drinking gourd alludes to a hollowed-out gourd that was used by enslaved people and rural Americans to dip into water. But in this song, it is a code name for the Big Dipper, which points north. If you're an overseer and you're not in on the lingo for the Underground Railroad, you'd be like, okay, they're singing about the river water and the drinking gourd they use. Okay, whatever. And it's enough. Now, the chorus is... Follow the drinking gourd, follow the drinking gourd, for the old man say, follow the drinking gourd. Old man is Navy slang for captain. The white underground railroad operative, Peg Lake Joe, was formerly a sailor. I had always heard the name, oh, he's like Peg Lake Joe. I had no idea Peg Lake Joe was actually a real person and much more an ally. I had no idea. Now, Verse 2 is more descriptive on how to follow the river to freedom, and it describes the route from Mobile, Alabama to the north, which is why when it said in the first quail call, it was in reference to the Alabama bird breeding season. The river bank am a very good road. The river they are referring to is the Tom Bigbee River, which according to drinkinggore.org, empties into Mobile Bay and extends into northeastern Mississippi. The dead tree show the way, left foot, peg foot going on, follow the drinking gourd. Peg like Joe marked dead trees and other landmarks with charcoal or mud with an outline of a human foot and a round spot instead of a leg, left foot. This signified that they were on the right track headed north, and once you crossed, someone would help you. 
there are more forces than that, but I just wanted to use a little bit to show how they talked in code with the words that seem innocent enough to those who don't know. But to those who knew better, that was their way to freedom. That's so ingenuitive. While it is unclear when the term Underground Railroad came into effect and was adopted, the first instance that we see it talked about is in a newspaper in 1831. A slave man named Tice Davis escaped from Kentucky to Ohio, and his enslaver blamed an Underground Railroad for helping him escape. Frederick Douglass talks about it in 1845 when he's condemning the abolitionists who talked about the Underground Railroad openly. He said it was turning the Underground Railroad into the Upper Ground Railroad. Frederick Douglass was terrified that the white abolitionists that talked about it so openly would ruin it and ruin the whole operation and put the lives of these escaped people at risk. And to some extent, he was absolutely justified. Frederick Douglass is also an important figure to the Underground Railroad. By telling his story of his enslavement and the cruelty he experienced, he made slavery alive and real to white people in the North that may have never even seen a black person. He talked about his story and the atrocities of slavery and how it denied basic human freedom and dignity for black people. By a black man and a former slave standing in front of crowds of white people along the anti-slavery circuit and detailing, his life was one of the greatest catalysts for the anti-slavery movement. A white northern man wrote after hearing Frederick Douglass speak, he said, he quote, couldn't have hated slavery more. On top of giving speeches, Frederick Douglass also used his house as a station for escaped enslaved men and women, and he helped hundreds of escapees. Another myth that we're going to break down is exactly who were the main helpers in the Underground Railroad. Many scholars depict the Underground Railroad as mostly selfless white abolitionists who helped escape slaves because they couldn't help themselves or that freed people reached out towards passive slaves and lifted them into freedom. But this is just not the case. Now, there were many white abolitionists who were involved in the Underground Railroad, and they definitely deserve their roses because of their bravery and their unwillingness to turn a blind eye to the injustice and the cruelty of slavery. It was also one of the first examples of interracial collaboration between white and black individuals in American society. That's huge. One of the groups of white abolitionists we are going to talk about are the Quakers. The Quakers are considered to be the first organized, the first organized group to actively help enslaved people. As of 1780, they would not allow their members to own slaves. The Quakers are a Christian group and they have six core beliefs, according to Quaker United Nations office. And they are integrity, equality, Simplicity, community, stewardship of the earth, and peace, hence why they were anti-slavery. The Quakers believed that there was an inward guiding light known as the Holy Spirit in each human, and that God directly communicates with his people, and they do not believe in clergy because they believe whatever God wants to reveal to his people, he will do so to an individual, and each individual is equal in the opportunity that they have to share God's revelation. And it's another reason that they don't really hold politicians to a higher standard. It was common back in the day 
to if a politician walked in the room, you know, you'd take off your hat and show respect, but they didn't do it because they were like, you're just a man. They didn't believe in social hierarchies like that. In 1786, George Washington made a formal complaint against this group because the Quakers had attempted to, quote, liberate one of his enslaved people. In the early 1800s, Quaker abolitionist Isaac Hopper set up a network in Philadelphia that helped enslaved people on the run. So they were really important allies to the Underground Railroad. While it is important to celebrate allies, making it seem like they were the main ones doing the heavy lifting can lead to a ratio of the fact that the Underground Railroad was made up of mostly free northern black people. And it was mostly black people who led the efforts of the railroad in its expansion. Especially when the penalty for white abolitionists and black abolitionists were so different should they be caught. Having escaped slaves was breaking a federal law, but abolitionists argued that there was a higher law, God's law, that commanded you to help those who needed it. For white abolitionists, majority faced fines, public shame, and in fewer and more extreme cases, jail time, and sometimes with their lives. For black abolitionists, they could be sold back into slavery, even if they were born free tortured which was not uncommon for black people to be tortured back in the day look up the history of gynecology or even killed an example of black-led efforts to help escaped enslaved people to freedom would be the formation of vigilance committees black abolitionist david ruggles formed the first vigilance committee in new york in 1835 and soon after many northern states followed suit the vigilance committees protected those that had run away, gave them resources, food, a place to stay, and free blacks from being potential kidnapped victims. It was not uncommon for slave catchers to try and steal free men and women and sell them into slavery, even if they were born free. Vigilance communities communicated with each other. According to the Philadelphia Encyclopedia, vigilant committees operated more openly than the secretive Underground Railroad. The associations and the committee's work was kept secret, but their existence is well known. So it's really well, I'm really well known, but what it is I do, that's the secret. That's what it was like for vigilance committees. In Philadelphia, members published their names and addresses in the Philadelphia Freeman newspapers and in flyers so that fugitives and others in need could easily find them. They wanted the escaped slaves to know exactly where to go and who was going to help. These committees would take donations from their communities like clothes, money, and give it to these escaped people who are either trying to stay in the north or going up more north and go to Canada. These black abolitionists fought for political change to make conditions better for themselves and for those escaping freedom. Because though the North abolished slavery from their states, they still relied heavily economically on the works of slaves. I believe in one documentary I said cotton was the biggest export, even if you cotton was still more economically needed than every other import America had put together. Many northern whites didn't want slavery in their states, but they were okay with it in other southern states. It gave them a false sense of more superiority, I guess. They were like, oh my goodness, look at those savages over there. 
but I do want to do business with them. Yeah, they're yeah they're getting things done. I, I need that. I need a piece of the pie. Asking them to help abolish slavery in the South was like asking them to give up their biggest economic investment. So they had to turn it into a moral issue and they had to make it in a way that white people in the North would care because if they don't see it, they don't hear it. You know, it's kind of like hear no evil, see no evil. They thought it was terrible in theory, but they were like, well, I'm not doing it. So you get what I'm saying? Like, it's like they cared, but not enough to do anything. Now, let's get into another key figure of the Underground Railroad, but an unsung hero. His name is Mr. William Steele, and y'all, this story is so interesting. William Steele was born in New Jersey in 1821 to formerly enslaved parents and became known as the father of the Underground Railroad, but you don't hear about him in school, at least not my school. You probably don't hear about him in school because we only get one month for Black History Month instead of Black History just being incorporated into the school curriculum. In 1847, William was hired as a clerk for the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery. And in that same year, he married his wife, Letita Steele. When Philadelphia abolitionists came together to organize vigilance committees to help protect and provide help to escaped slaves, he became chairman of the group. William and his wife moved into a row house that became one of the most well-known stations on the Underground Railroad. And it's still standing to this day at 625 South Delhi Street in Philadelphia, of course. They went on to harbor over 2,000 people and helped them to freedom. William recognized that each of these escaped slaves were people and that they had a story to tell and that it was worthy of being heard. William interviewed the people who came to his station as they passed through Philly. He kept record of who they were, what their enslaved name was, what their new name would be, where they were coming from, where they were going, and who previously enslaved them. Still stated, heroism and desperate struggle that many of our people had to endure should be kept green in memory of this and in coming generations. He wrote letters on behalf of those who ran away, who wanted to get the word to their wives and children who were left behind to let them know that they are well, and oftentimes how they plan to liberate the family next. He then arranged for those letters to be sent back south with trusted counterparts to deliver the messages. He couldn't just send it through UPS, y'all, because first off, slaves couldn't read, so why can't? Why are you getting mail? Second off, who are you communicating with? And third off, do you really think the master is going to not open their mail and read it and be like, oh, <laughs> absolutely not? Yeah, he had to do it through secret, trusted people along the path with connections he's made along the Underground Railroad. Still did this and kept record because he knew these records could reunite families that were often separated through the terrors of slavery. These records became a book in 1872 titled The Underground Railroad Records, and it tells the stories of 649 enslaved people who were brave and ran to freedom. It is used to this very day to help scholars understand exactly how those who were enslaved escaped to freedom and how they ran. I'm going to give you a brief spiel on his life. William was born free, but his mother was a slave woman named Charity, and she was enslaved in Maryland. Now, she had two sons named Peter and Levin. Before William was born, she and her two sons attempted to go north to freedom, but she failed, and her and her sons were brought back. After a long time, she determines 
and she just knows she has to get free again. But this time, she determines that she has to to leave her children behind. So that way she can make it and then send back for them. That must have been an incredibly hard decision to make. But Peter the youngest was only six. And it's very unlikely that a six-year-old would be able to keep up the pace on something that was literally life and death. She leaves them with her mother, who was also enslaved on that same plantation, and the grandmother looks after them while she is gone. But in a fit of rage, because of her escape and they couldn't find her, the master takes the two boys, Peter and Levin, and sells them to two different slave owners in Mississippi. The mama never got to bring her boys back with her as she had hoped. How heartbreaking, y'all. Fast forward 30 years later, a man walks into William Still's office at the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery looking for his mother named Charity. And his name was Peter. Standing in front of him was his long last brother he heard his mother cry for for many nights. William wrote of the magnificent reunion and the fate of it all. Like, I really want y'all to imagine the odds of this happening, you guys. No social media. No way to know who and where they went. The person you go to for help is your own brother. That's insane to me. That is so crazy. Now, Peter and William devised a plan to help liberate Peter's wife and children who were still enslaved. During the attempted rescue, one of Steele's white companions that was helping transport Peter and his family was killed, and Peter and his family were all returned into slavery. How heartbreaking is that? Like, uh, William writes a letter to appeal to the humanity of the slave owner, asking him to release his brother and his family, but he never got a response. And his long-lost brother was lost again. I know losing his brother back to slavery had to haunt him. Out of the hundreds of people he saved, he couldn't have saved his brother. But that was just one. Like that was just the ugly reality of the Underground Railroad. It failed as often as it succeeded, unfortunately. Another myth I believed as a child was that a lot of enslaved people escaped to freedom using the Underground Railroad. Scholars believe that as many to 50,000 to 100,000 escapees were part of the Underground Railroad at some point. But compare that to the 12.5 million who were enslaved in America, that's not a large population of those who got to get to freedom. It's important to talk about this because sometimes... People will use the Underground Railroad to circumvent our discomfort around talking about this country's history of slavery. If we convince ourselves that a lot of people escaped and that there was ample opportunity to do so, then maybe we'll feel a little less icky about it. But it's just simply not the truth. There was not a whole heaping bunch of opportunity to run. Though not a lot of enslaved people were able to escape to freedom, just the idea of the Underground Railroad put the fear of God into the minds of slave owners. They believed that enslaved people who wanted to escape to freedom actually had a disease, like literally a disease. Samuel Cartwright coined this term as drapetomania. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but he coined this term as drapetomania. And according to him, there were only two treatments for this kind of disease. The first, being kind but firm to them, and the second, and I quote, is 
whipping the devil out of them. Which one do you think most slave owners went with? I'm gonna let y'all think about that one. Something else I didn't know was exactly who was it that ran away? What demographic ran away? According to PBS, 80% of these fugitives that, quote unquote fugitives, were young males in their teens and 20s who generally absconded alone. They went alone. 95% of people who fled, man and woman, escaped alone. Black women were less likely to run away because of their family and there's the desire for them to stay together and child-rearing responsibilities. There were instances where entire families would flee together, but it was extremely rare. It was extremely rare. The existence of the Underground Railroad is why so many southern states were so pressed to pass the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which was part of the Compromise of 1850. Congress passed this law to appease the cotton kings of the South, which meant that if their slaves escaped to the North, the federal marshals in northern states would then be required to help slave catchers recapturing the escapees, and if they didn't, there was a large fine to pay. They would punish those who hid escaped enslaved people with civil and criminal penalties, including jail time ranging from six months to several years in prison. The judicial system allowed for the federal commissioners to be bribed to side with slave catchers because they received $10 for every decision that confirmed a black person as an escaped slave, but only $5 for a ruling that stated the black person was free. What the heck? There was no jury, no trial, and the accused black men and women were not allowed to testify at their own hearing. What? And if the commissioner declared you free, they had to fill out a lot of paperwork. But if they declared you a runaway slave, you were just sold. There was no paperwork. Which is such an obstruction of justice to me. How are you paid for ruling one way or another? But I guess that's a question we have to ask certain Supreme Court members. <coughs> Clarence Thomas. But, you know, don't get, don't get me on my soapbox, y'all. The passing of the Fugitive Slave Law sent shockwaves throughout the freed black communities in the North. Because even if you had been freed for decades, if you were caught, you could be sent back into slavery. Even those who were born free could be kidnapped through the use of arbitrary arrest and sent to slavery. The ruling was so favorable to the South that these slave catchers from the South flooded the North. And Northern people took advantage also and began kidnapping free Black people and sold them into slavery. An example of this is according to an Illinois senator named Shelby M. Coley. In the state of Illinois, bordering the Ohio River, nearly all the free Negroes were kidnapped and sold into slavery by 1851. That is only one year, y'all. That is wild. That's how hard it hit the streets in Illinois. Well, yeah. <laughs> this caused the Underground Railroad to have to expand to Canada because the country had abolished slavery a hundred years before this, and it was the only guaranteed safe space for Black people now. By the end of the Civil War, more than 20,000 Black people had resettled into Canada. Though the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was a terrible law and took the lives of countless Black people and white allies, it did have some unintended positive effects. Northern white people that cared very little about slavery began to see first-hand accounts of what life was like for Blacks in the South. 
It re-energized the Underground Railroad and more people began to assist and use their homes as safe houses. This is also where we see Harriet Tubman get her inspiration to lay her life on the line for the cause of freedom. Harriet Tubman was born in Maryland and was one out of 11 children. That's a lot of kids. She was beaten daily because they wanted to break her spirit and because she was not submissive. She was defiant. As a teenager, she attempted to flee twice with her brothers and failed. She had a quilt that she traded for information about the Underground Railroad. And on her third time, she made it to Philadelphia and she made it to freedom. But freedom was not enough for her. She had to free her family members and her loved ones. So she went back south in the, with the assistance of white abolitionist Thomas Garrett, who was a clearinghouse of information for freed black people and those who were still enslaved. According to Harriet's own words and documents, she rescued about 70 people in 13 trips to Maryland, and she was never caught, and she never lost a passenger. She brought her loved ones to Canada and because it was the most safe place. Another myth that I believed as a child, and I'm embarrassed to say even into college, was that most enslaved people who were brave enough to run fled north. Actually, majority of those who fled, fled to freedom by running to the Caribbean, Spanish Florida, Native American communities, Mexico, and freed black communities in the south. I didn't even know there were freed black communities in the south. It is estimated those enslaved people who escaped to southern countries outnumbered those who fled to northern free states or Canada. I'm ashamed to say when I was younger, even though I knew the risk for enslaved people and I knew the risk were dire if they ran and were caught, I wondered if the Underground Railroad was right there, why didn't they just run if they didn't want to be slaves anymore? Were they scared? I heard the stories of Harriet Tubman, of Nat Turner, Henry Box Brown, the man who mailed himself to freedom, and wondered if they simply didn't care enough or know enough. But this way of thinking is not only unhelpful, but it shifts our focus. By using exceptionally brave people in their story and using them as a standard for how enslaved people should have felt or should have acted, we are implicitly blaming those who were victims. And we're ignoring the fact that they were under the most brutal and savage abuse of their slave owners. This way of thinking also shifts the blame from those who deserve the blame, such as the system of slavery, those who built it, and those who fought to uphold it. The overwhelming majority of slaves did not attain freedom. It is not because they didn't seek it. It is not because they didn't desire it or deserve it. It is because they were victims of a system that threatened them and their family with unspeakable violence, such as amputation of a limb, branding, severe beating, rape, and even their lives should they even dare run away to freedom. The threat of being killed, beaten, or separated from your family and never seeing them again loomed over each enslaved person's head every day. Because you could do nothing to stop your family member from being sold. That fear can be paralyzing. If you did run, you were most likely on your own until you crossed the Ohio River. It is estimated that almost half of the escaped enslaved people had to cross the Ohio River at some point. It is almost a mile wide and full of currents, and most slaves did not know how to swim. Because, y'all, what pool were they going to swim in? What leisure day did they have to learn how to swim? 
So when you got to the river, you have no idea how to survive. You just know you have to get across because across that river is freedom. In the Negro spiritual, swing low, sweet chariot. In the first verse, it says, I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming forward to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming forward to carry me home. Y'all, if y'all talk about my singing, I will find you. I'm just kidding. But I'm, I'm not a singer, y'all. That's why I'm talking. Um, and again, in code, the River Jordan was the Ohio River. And a band of angels would be a town of anti-slavery sympathizers. By word of mouth, it became known among slaves that a lantern in the window on the free side of the river meant that it was a safe house for you to hide for the night. In Ripley, Ohio, lanterns were burned brightly almost every night and became important in the Underground Railroad. Nearly the entire town acted as safe houses for these escaped black people. There was a free man named John P. Parker in Ripley, Ohio. He kept so quiet about his activities, because y'all, it was still a federal law, that what he was doing and his name and his work was almost lost to history forever. He was one of the few men who actually took the chance to cross over into slave territory at night and see if there were any black people seeking freedom. And he went almost nightly. And for a black man, because he was formerly enslaved, he could have been killed, re-enslaved, or faced 10 to 20 years in prison. Parker himself used to be enslaved, as I just mentioned. He ran away twice, and both times he was captured and brought back. But by doing side jobs for his masters and for others, he was able to save money over a 20-year period and buy himself his freedom at the price of $1,800, which was no small amount of money back then. That was quite a bit of money. Once he was freed, in the daytime, he worked as an iron foundry, and by night, he crossed the river to help escapees find their way to freedom. Eventually, John P. Parker purchased his own foundry and became one of the first few black people to obtain patents for several inventions, such as a tobacco press and a soil pulverizer. He made these inventions to replace the need for slave labor. The soil pulverizer did the work of a hundred men. He sent four of his children to college. Within one generation, he left slavery and boosted his family into the black middle class. This was a man with a plan, y'all, that is so revolutionary. It is estimated from his memoir titled His Promised Land. It is known he has helped thousands pass safely. And he did this without saying a peep. There were others in Ripley who boasted loudly and proudly and was very bold. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being unashamed of the work, especially if you know you're doing good work. But he was so quiet. I think it enabled him to help more people because no one knew to look out for him. No one knew to watch him. It's a shame we don't hear about him in school. At least I didn't hear about him in my school. I don't know about Charles. There is so much to know about the topic of the Underground Railroad. I fear I'm only scratching the surface on important figures and laws. If you're interested in a part two about the Underground Railroad, I can dive in a little deeper and 
find some more people, some more laws, and talk more about conditions um, if you're interested in that. But I didn't want this episode to be too long. If you're interested in finding out more about the Underground Railroad, there are some relics and safe houses that participated in the Underground Railroad that are still standing to this day, including Mr. James P. Parker's house in Ohio. His house was right on the river, or really close to the river, to my understanding. So it'd be really interesting to see where he was, how he was looking out over the river. I might make a visit one day. There's a list at nps.gov of all the still-standing known sites of the Underground Railroad. You may be able to find some near you. Alright guys, thank you for sticking with me through this entire episode. It truly means a lot and I appreciate it. If you enjoyed, leave a review wherever you are listening and follow us on Instagram at Let's Break This Down Podcast. On our Instagram, we post pictures of important people and important documents that we discussed during the podcast so you can put a face with the name actually go to our instagram and leave a comment if you learned something new today it boosts our page and podcast into the algorithm so people can learn with us in wherever you're watching please leave us a positive review on spotify apple music wherever you're listening to because it really helps and it goes a long way thanks for tuning in until next time guys Yeah.